Today we're going to look at the commission of Moses to deliver the Israelites. And our passage is Exodus chapter 3, verse 6 through to verse 12. The commission of Moses to deliver the Israelites. In our last look at Exodus, we left off having seen 80-year-old Moses taking his father-in-law's flock to the backside of the desert. And whilst Moses was there, God spoke to him from a flame that was in a bush, but the flame did not consume the bush. Moses took a closer look and the Lord commanded him to take off his shoes because he was standing on holy ground. And we are told in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6, that Moses was afraid to look upon God. We considered others who were afraid when they were in the presence of God and we saw that the sinless angels in heaven cover their faces and they cover their feet in the presence of God. The scriptures plainly tell us that God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about him. In other words, Christians are to fear him. God is to be had in reverence by Christians. Finally, we considered whether our own attitude of heart and mind before God is one of godly fear and reverence. Today we shall consider God's commissioning of Moses to deliver the Israelites from their afflictions in Egypt. Let's have a look at verse 6 in Exodus chapter 3. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. You see there in verse 6, the Lord said to Moses, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. We'll see the significance of that very soon. It's highly significant that God declared himself to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But just looking at the words there that were spoken, God said, I am the God of Abraham and so on. Even though by that time all of those men were dead and gone, the Lord nevertheless said, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. We could so easily miss the significance of what God was saying there if it was not for the Son of God explaining the meaning of those words about 1,500 years later when the Sadducees, these were a group of men who had influence and wealth and they were a group within the um, the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, they came to Jesus questioning him and the Sadducees, they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. And let's see what Jesus said to those Sadducees when they came to him with their objections concerning the resurrection. And it is relevant 
to what we see here in verse 6 of Exodus chapter 3. Jesus explains what God was actually saying there. Jesus, who is, of course, the Son of God. Anyway, let's turn to Mark chapter 12. Keep your finger in Exodus 3. Mark chapter 12 and verse 18. Then came unto him the Sadducees, which say there is no resurrection. And they asked him, saying, Master, Moses wrote unto us, If a man's brother die and leave his wife behind, and leave no children, that his brother should take his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. They've actually got that wrong, by the way. They really need to read their Old Testament law. It's if a brother dies having left a son, they look after that son uh, on behalf of their brother. But anyway, let's continue with this. Now there were seven brothers, uh, sorry, seven brethren, and the first took a wife and died, and dying left no seed. And the second took her and died, neither left he any seed, and the third likewise. And the seven had her, and left no seed. Last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, therefore, when they shall rise, whose wife shall she be of them? For the seven had her to wife. They think they're being clever there, don't they? She's been married to these seven brothers. Which one of them is going to be her husband if there's a resurrection? And Jesus answering said unto them, Do ye not therefore err? Because ye know not the scriptures, neither the power of God. For when they shall rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. As, it, as you say in your, in your wedding vows, till death us do part, or words to that effect. But are as the angels which are in heaven. And as touching the dead, that they rise, have ye not read in the book of Moses, how in the bush God spake unto him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Ye therefore do greatly err. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead, and Jesus refuted them by pointing out that if there was no resurrection, God would hardly declare himself to be the God of people who were forevermore dead and had no prospect of ever being raised up to life again. Why would God say, I am the God of Abraham, if Abraham was dead and gone forevermore? And to think that the one whom the Sadducees came to with their objections to the resurrection of the dead was none other than the one who would himself triumphantly rise from the grave after paying the price for the sins of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses and all whom his father has chosen in eternity for salvation from sin and for everlasting life. God is the God of all such people, whether they're in their graves or not. Also in John chapter 11 verse 25 and 26, Jesus declared himself to be the resurrection. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. 
He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. So there's a promise for all those who are dead in their graves, who died trusting in Jesus, they will be raised up. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. That's speaking of resurrection. And Jesus went on to say, and he that liveth and believeth in me, that's you now, if you're a Christian, you're living, you're believing in Jesus, he that liveth and believeth in me shall never die. How wonderful. And these words come from the one who is the resurrection and the life. Anyway, I'm back in Exodus chapter 3. Let's have a look at verses 7 through to 10. And we'll see the relevance here of God mentioning Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. And I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them out of that land unto a good land, and a large (coughs) unto a land flowing with milk and honey, unto the place of the Canaanites, and the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel is come unto me, and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my children, the children of Israel, out of Egypt, out of affliction, out of Egypt and take them to the land, the promised land of Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey. The backdrop to these verses is that promises had been made by God to Abraham about 2,000 years BC when he called Abraham to go out to a place which he would receive as an inheritance. What we're reading in these verses 7 to 10, it follows on from a promise that was made to Abraham about 400 years earlier. Consequently, Abraham went out not knowing where he was going. As it is written in Genesis chapter 12, verses 6 and 7, Abraham passed through the land to the place of Sheshem, as far as the terebinth tree of Moreh. And the Canaanites were then in the land. This is the promised land. The Canaanites were then in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your seed I will give this land. There's the promise. To your seed I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Abraham died having not received the promises. Even so, the promises were fulfilled in part. Fulfilled in part over 400 years later when the Israelites, who were the natural (coughs) seed of Abraham, his son Isaac, and Isaac's son Jacob, 
entered into Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey, under the leadership of Joshua, who was the successor of Moses. So the promise that was made to Abraham was fulfilled in part. The natural descendants of Abraham, his son and his grandson, entering into the land of Canaan. And this, what we see here in these verses, Moses is being called by God to lead the Israelites out of their afflictions in Egypt, whereupon they would, 40 years later, receive the land of promise, Canaan. So what we see in verses 7 and 10, through to 10 rather, is all part of God working out the promises that he gave to Abraham about 400 years earlier. Can you see already, it's not for nothing that God just suddenly brings out, uh, brings into it Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in verse 6. It's highly relevant for the work that um, Moses was being called to do by God, leading the Israelites, the natural descendants of Abraham, out of their affliction. <clears throat> However, as I said, deliverance of Israel from their afflictions and their eventual entrance into the promised land was a fulfilment in part. And this is the thing that you really need to get. It was a fulfilment in part. The promises that were given to Abraham have an ongoing spiritual dimension with a fulfilment in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is something that you all need to understand. So important. Let me show you what I mean, it's, uh, or not I show you, the Apostle Paul will show you this in Galatians chapter 3. Again, if you want to keep your finger in Exodus 3, I'm turning to Galatians chapter 3. I'm just going to read a couple of verses from Paul's letter to the Galatians. You don't need to turn to it, just listen carefully to me. Galatians chapter 3. And verse 16, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. This is the spiritual dimension, the fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ, a promise that was made to Abraham and his seed. His seed being Christ. And then you look down to verse 29 in Galatians chapter 3. Speaking to Christians, whether they be natural born Jews or Gentiles, it doesn't really matter. Or look at verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For if ye are all one... In Christ Jesus, for ye are one in Christ Jesus, and if ye be Christ, in other words, if you belong to Jesus, then are ye Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise, the promise that God made to him 400 years thereabouts before, Ab- uh, before Moses received his commission to deliver the Israelites and to take them to 
the, the, the land of Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey. And we can see the spiritual aspect of this with a fulfillment in Christ Jesus, him being that seed. Can you see that Moses being chosen by God to deliver the Israelites from their afflictions in Egypt and then Joshua, his successor, leading them into Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey. That really happened. This is historical truth. All of that happened. But even so, it symbolised the Lord Jesus Christ who was chosen by his father as we see Moses being chosen and commissioned by God in Exodus chapter 3 to deliver the Israelites. Jesus was chosen by his father, almighty God, to come down and to deliver people like you and like me from our afflictions. To deliver from their sins people from all nations, tribes, peoples and tongues. They are people who believe that Jesus was wounded for their transgressions and bruised for their depravity. They all have a heavenly inheritance. If you are trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, then you are an heir according to the promises that were made to Abraham. And yours is a heavenly kingdom, a heavenly inheritance, and not a piece of land in the Middle East. Abraham knew that very well, and so it didn't matter to him that he would be dead and gone by the time his natural descendants, the Israelites, entered Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey. Abraham, he was looking above and beyond those things. Abraham saw himself as nothing more than a stranger and a pilgrim on the earth. He was looking heavenwards to a city whose builder and maker is God. And so too was the hymn writer who wrote, When I tread the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fears subside. Death of death and hell's destruction, land me safe on Canaan's side. The, the, the hymn writer was not speaking about the country, the kingdom of Jordan in the Middle East, neither was he talking about Canaan, the land where, the, where, the, where, where there were the Jebusites, the Perizzites, the Hittites, the Hivites, Girgashites and all the rest of them. He was speaking about heaven itself. Surely that is how it has to be for all of you who by the grace of God have a hope that reaches heaven's shores. Having trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, this world is not your home. You're just passing through on a pilgrimage that will take you to the heavenly Jerusalem where your great God and Saviour Jesus Christ is. As a Christian you look above and beyond the things of this world. And you thank God for all these wonderful types that we see in the Old Testament. Things that really did happen, but they point to a fulfilment in the Lord Jesus Christ of something infinitely better. Let's have a look at verses 11 and 12. And Moses said unto God, Who am I? 
that I should go unto Pharaoh and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt. And he said, Certainly I will be with thee, and this shall be a token unto thee that I have sent thee. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, ye shall serve God upon this mountain. Moses said to God, Who am I? Perhaps he was questioning why, of all the people in the world, God had chosen him to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. Him, an 80-year-old man, who had been nothing more than a shepherd for the past 40 years, having fled from Egypt. Let's not forget that, that last time Moses was in Egypt, he ran for it. He got wind of the fact that Pharaoh had heard that he had killed an Egyptian who was beating one of the Hebrews. And he feared and he fled. And he spent 40 years in Midian, tending his father-in-law's flock. The problem with Moses was that his focus was on himself instead of being on his sender, almighty God. Just look at verse 11 again. Look at all the eyes in there. Verse 11, and Moses said unto God, Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? It was all about him. Now, I don't know about you, but when I when my focus is on me, I get scared as well. It's never good for your focus to be on yourself. Far better that your focus is on God. It would seem that Moses saw himself as a most unlikely deliverer, despite having bravely intervened 40 years earlier, when he saw that Egyptian beating one of the Israelites. It was very brave of him to intervene that 40 years ago. We're told in Acts chapter 7 and verse 25 in the New Testament that when that happened, that intervention happened, he supposed that his Hebrew brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they did not understand. So clearly that 40 years ago, Moses had some kind of understanding that one day he would deliver the Israelites, from their affliction. Because that's what it says in Acts 7.25. He supposed that his Hebrew brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them. But they didn't understand. Now in verse 11 here in chapter 3 of um, Exodus, and 40 years after that incident, it would seem that Moses did not, didn't seem to understand it either. I suppose 40 years is a long, long time looking after the flock. It has been suggested that after 40 years of inaction, looking after his father-in-law's flock, Moses had become timid and distrustful of himself and shrank from putting himself forward. Maybe. In verse 12, God graciously spoke words of encouragement and assurance to Moses when he said, Certainly I will be with thee. That can clearly be seen to be the case. For example, when Moses finally led the Israelites out of Egypt, 
And Pharaoh and his army were in hot pursuit. What happened? They got to the Red Sea and the Red Sea parted and it provided an escape route for Moses and all the Israelites. And then that same sea engulfed Pharaoh and his army and killed them. Who do you think did those things? Who parted the Red Sea? God. God was with them. Who was it who caused the sea to engulf Pharaoh and his army? God. And to God be the glory. And God was with the Israelites throughout their wanderings. 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Leading them by day in a pillar of cloud. And at night God led them in a pillar of fire. They had clothes and shoes that never wore out. Can you imagine that? I bought some shoes not long ago and um, I've been busy trying to stick them together because the uppers are coming away from the soles. I've only had them a few months. They were in the wilderness for 40 years and they had shoes that didn't wear out. They had bread from heaven, water from a rock. They had everything they needed. God was with them and we see that we see it in verse 12 God is already saying to Moses certainly I will be with thee there were various other unlikely candidates whom God chose to be deliverers of Israel and the Jews such as Gideon who was threshing wheat when the angel of the Lord appeared to him and commissioned him to deliver Israel from the Midianites Gideon pointed out that he was from the weakest clan in his tribe and he was the youngest in his family. He had all the reasons why he shouldn't be the one um, to deliver the Israelites. Nevertheless, the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. And when the Lord called Jeremiah to be a prophet... His reply was, O Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a child. However, the Lord said to him, Do not say, I am a youth, for you shall go to all to whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you. Maybe even though you are a born-again Christian and a citizen of the heavenly kingdom. You're on that pilgrimage that will take you to the heavenly Jerusalem. Even so, you still cannot imagine God choosing little old you for kingdom service. You are so insignificant after all. Why would God choose you for kingdom service, such as knocking on doors, helping out with clubs at church or anything within the life of the church or perhaps evangelical outreach or making a stand for Christ at school or in the workplace or in the local community, all of which will inevitably displease and anger many Christ-hating people. Why would God choose you? Maybe you just don't feel qualified to do those things. Well, guess what? Guess what? In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 
verse 27 and 28, it is written, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised. This is what, this is who God chooses. The things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. And I like this one. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. The foolishness of preaching. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I find that very encouraging. What this all means is that when God brings sinners to repentance and saving faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, through the agency of foolish, weak, base and despised Christians, there can be no doubt that salvation is by the grace of God alone and God receives all the glory. And just as God was with Moses and Gideon and Jeremiah, the Lord Jesus Christ is with all his redeemed, having said to them, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Dear Christian, I'll finish with a few apt words from him. There's a work for Jesus ready at your hand. Tis a task the master just for you has planned. Haste to do his bidding, yield him service true. There's a work for Jesus none but you can do. Amen.